Hello readers, my name is Jason Jefferies and this is Bookin' brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is one of my favorite authors and one of my favorite people, M. Randall O. Wayne. His new book is Hallelujah Station and Other Stories, published by our friends at Autumn House. Randall, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here, and um, I'll let our listeners in on a fun fact. This is the second time we are recording this podcast because the first time my sound card uh, and my recording device died um, about halfway through the interview. So again, thank you for doing this again, and I'm going to ask you a question about... Can I just say that I love, yeah. I love that you were just honest with everyone? Oh, yeah. Um, one of my favorite things in the world is just, like, open, like, transparent vulnerability, you know? <laughs> so that's a great way to start this off. Well, you know, yeah, everyone might want to know. And um, part of the reason that I let everyone know is because uh, folks who listen to this every week will know that I've been asking authors um, how they are doing personally um, during this, the COVID-19 era under the coronavirus. Uh, But I already know your answer to the question, um, which is that as an author, uh, as a writer, uh, some things for you haven't changed much. But building off of the answer that I now know, um, I would like to go into a little more detail or go a little deeper into this question and ask you, how are you imagining um, kind of reintegrating yourself back into like quote unquote uh, normalcy? I like that. I like that change in the conversation because, well, I want to go back to before Corona actually Mm -hmm. and just sort of talk about how negatively I I think my lifestyle had had become when I was teaching and only focusing on writing and and I would always find some sort of excuse to not go out um, even after I'd made plans I became that person you Mm -hmm. know Um, and so then it was just more at home more um, in this what I thought was like relatively like happy isolation but now that I'm forced to be isolated, man, do I miss like going out and being around people and trying to be a part of a, a greater um, community. And so one of the things that I look forward to and that I hope that remains is a healthier, a healthier balance with, um, with my uh, so- social life and my work life. And, you know, part of that is that things in, in, in my life as a, as a 40-year-old man have just started to kind of like slow down and, and naturally, a little bit more naturally. Mm. And so I think that I was working very, very hard. I was hustling very, very hard for a really, really long time. And coronavirus like sort of has given me a chance to, to realize that I, that I don't really have to hustle that hard right now in this moment it could change mm-hmm. obviously but I'm, at, I'm in a pretty good place um like psychologically and career wise and and i've been talking to uh, most listeners probably know that my wife is the novelist misha Naren, but we talked a lot over the summer about just trying to be able to step back and and own the fact that everything is okay 
right now mm-hmm. uh, and just sort of exist in that in that moment Right. Thank you. And I'm going to build off of that answer here along the same lines uh, to ask you a question about the promotion of this new book, Hallelujah Station and other stories in the past for your first book, The Excellent Meander Belt, which we have spoken about on this podcast before in a two part podcast last year. Um, I compare in my mind your touring schedule to that of a band that is developing a cult following like a punk band or a jam band and many authors just do a short round of promotional appearances for their books and then wrap it up. Some authors um, kind of dread that cycle but you Randall along with Misha seem to keep the roads hot and I feel like this is paying off for you now it's going to pay off in dividends in the future uh, much like it does with the type of, of bands I'm alluding to but for someone like you who enjoys and relies upon public experiences and readings and travel for your promotion um, how are you switching things up in this environment for the promotion of Hallelujah Station and other stories yeah I, I do I do like doing live events man I, re- I think it's because I was a touring musician from the age of 16 until the last where I went on I was 31 years old um, and and there's just there's nothing really like the anxiety and stress and positive anxiety and positive stress that comes just before you do a show and then the release that comes after it's over but one of the things that I've noticed I've been listening to and watching a lot of Zoom events um, since March, and there's there's a positive aspect that I've kind of clued into, and it's that these Zoom events, if you think about it in, in, it, in a different way, if you consider it as its own weird thing, not as a replacement for a public reading, hmm. has the intimacy of a live radio performance or, or or like or of live radio live but it's live video you know mm-hmm. um and that i want to kind of lean into that a little bit more because when i go to these zoom events these zoom readings i'm often doing other stuff there's the mute option you know and so i'm often cooking food or um doing the dishes or um paying attention to something else while it's happening and and so it, it creates, I feel like it creates this more sort of complex, multifaceted um, social experience. Um, and so like, one of the things that I'm going to do at Quail Ridge on Friday, actually, is um, pair songs with, the, with some readings from the book and, and just talk about how, because music uh, influenced these stories greatly, and to just kind of play songs and talk about how um, listening to those songs kind of helped me shape the fiction uh, of, of the world. So then it kind of moves between reading and a discussion of, of craft, but also playing some songs and talking about music. Nice. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Randall. And um, now let's dive into this book, Hallelujah Station, this excellent collection of short stories. And another reason that I'm glad that we got to do this interview again is because I now got to read the print copy of the book. And before, um, you had sent me a, a galley that was a PDF, and actually it was a galley that had some edits in it, so I, w- <laughs> I could see the pop-up like <laughs> comments, and I kind of felt like I was reading like 
Pale Fire or uh, Alfred Apple's like uh, commentary on Lolita a couple times. It was pretty cool, like um, seeing that back and forth. But um, what a fantastic physical object this book is. I was uh, able to read it twice, which, um, man, it holds up and is even better the second time around. Um, This book opens with a story titled Salvation. And when I started reading the story, I expected it to be a riverboat story along the lines of Sutri by Cormac McCarthy. Um, But then the narrator reveals that he's using this old gambling boat, Salvation, as a place to cook meth. uh, And to live also, to be fair. But immediately my expectations took a left turn. Knowing what I know about you as a writer, I should have known uh, that this was not going to be a Sutri story. But um, what I would like to ask is, what is it about these aspects of life, this kind of seedy underbelly of the capitalist system that we live in, that draws you to write about it? Yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, the the straightforward, honest answer is it's where I come from. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time I was, you know, 15 years old, I was working in a donut shop that, um, and I lied about my age to get the job, they didn't even, like, Jack, I just said that I was born a year earlier uh, to get the job. And I only wanted the job because where all the punk rockers worked and I wanted to be around the punk rockers. And uh, it closed down and moved, the donut making part of it closed down and moved to Memphis, but then the owner turned the back into an illegal gambling hall. And so um, people who worked the front desk, their only job was make sure that the people coming and going between the slot machines and the back were in and so they would they would go to the bathroom quote unquote and then enter into like what used to be where we made donuts so even at like a young age I'm, I'm introduced to that seedy underworld uh, you know and I loved it hmm. I absolutely loved it um, and it made so much sense to sort of like the rhythm and the music of growing up in a place uh, like 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 Memphis, a river city, a music city, a city that's like bereft with poverty and and racism, um, and and that's the environment that I grew up in. Right on, and um, also in this story, we've mentioned the narrator who is selling crystal meth. He does so with a religious business card that reads, "Salvation is at hand." Um, are you drawing any parallels here between the drug trade and the business of organized religion? No, no, but in in the world of this is the river, no matter, I think, whatever part of it, even if you're up in Minnesota, um, religion is predominant. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you pair... I'm just going to stick with what I know. I don't know anything about Minnesota. So when you pair the Deep South, the religion of the, you know, the Baptist Christianity of the Deep South, of these river cities, of these hot cities, mm-hmm. um, with with this poverty and, and with this desperation, you, you, you get the other end, I think, let me just back. So the first question you asked was, um, what draws me to these sort of like backdrops of, of capital? or like the fringes of capitalism but I also think that religion is like in these areas function as the fringe as a fringe of capitalism in the same way that say like black market that that we all need and and, and, and that we like move towards with 
earnestness. And so I think that I'm not saying everything about like Memphis or the Deep South is hardship, but but there is a lot of that. And um, and I think that it's it, it's it's about sort of finding a, a ballast mm-hmm. to, to, to keep to keep you steady, you know. And so um, you know, salvation with the prayer hands, you know, the narrative says it's a genius move because nobody would question uh, the church like that uh, and think that they were out there selling uh, meth, and they wouldn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a play on the boat's original name, the the 19th century name of the gambling boat, Salvation. But um, but I like that question, or I like that reading. Right. Okay. I would next like to ask you about the story north of Wendell. This story is built around a predatory relationship that involves the posting of revenge porn on the internet, or so we are led to believe. And I think this is the first literary revenge porn story that I've ever read. Can you tell us about why you chose to grapple with this issue? Yeah. You know what's odd is that is um, that is like where the, the, the story came from, was this I don't know I, I don't actually know where the immediate moment of uh, of a teenager of, of a teenager living her life after this um, revenge porn issue had come about but that is where the story sort of like or the kernel of the story appeared and it took a really long time years in fact to to form it into in, in, into into a story and one and one of the reasons why was because I wanted um, Ruth, my, my, the main character of that story, to have all of the agency. I wanted her, her to have complete agency, um, and I wanted. I didn't want it to be a like complete sort of like story of victim victimization, um, and so one of the one of the aspects of Ruth's life is that she's, you know, like a cool, like punk rock, you know, junior in, in, in high school and like goes to these shows and meets this 21 year old singer of a band. And, and he like comes, comes after her and is attracted to her and woos her. And, and there's so much about that that is like romantic and fast and, uh, and and beautiful, and it like completely changes her sense of self, and there, and there's so much, um, and she stops hanging out with her brother and her friends, and just dedicates everything to this relationship. And what that I do, that I was something that I was um, uh, kind of intentionally wanted to kind of to mess around with in this story because when I was. A teenager myself, there were there were always these older guys in the punk scene that were dating my friends. They were old enough to buy booze, and they were dating my friends who just got their driver's license. Um, and and it used to, I mean, it always like pissed me off. But I had it all wrong then because I would get frustrated with my female friends and be like, "Why are you dating this dude? You know, he's mm. twenty one years old, which seems like he was ancient." <laughs> then uh, as, it, as it should mm-hmm. um, and and never really like getting mad at the guys because I was also a teenager and they were also letting me in but not 
sexually, you know, but I also understood the kind of um, dynamics of being um, accepted or led into like an older cool kid musician crowd when, when you're when you're that young. But it is absolutely predatory. Um, and one of the things, though, that I wanted to get right is Ruth doesn't see it as predatory. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she she sees it in terms of uh, the way that we would all see it. She sees it in terms of betrayal and, and heartbreak and uh, in terms of, um, you know, like her first big loss and the ways in which um, both she and and the and the boyfriend Max um, act out and, and and hurt one another, uh, and and how those responses spiral. So um, so that's that's the main thing that I wanted to kind of get into, to to get across um, in in that piece is how I, I think just like how complex. Um, their their particular relationship was and how they both how like the the truth and the definition of perpetrator and and victim were always kind of uh interchangeable throughout the various points in their relationship absolutely i think you um succeeded on delivering that uh point very well thank you so much and listeners we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back with m randall owain the Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with M. Randall O. Wayne, author of Hallelujah Station and Other Stories, which is published by our friends at Autumn House. Randall, I'd like to stick with the story north of Wendell for a moment, um, the story we were talking about before the break. The protagonist of this story, Ruth, uh, who is dealing with the predatory older Max and Nikki, is sent to a Catholic school to wrap up her high school career. We learn that she leaves this school, uh, gets her GED, gets a college degree, an MFA, eventually gets a film placed in the Sundance Festival, this thread of someone who is sort of seen as a debaucher in their high school life, um, then leaving this life and making good is a thread I recognize from your previous book, Meander Belt. Can you tell our readers and our listeners why you are drawn to write this sort of arc for your characters? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really. Um... I didn't really compare those two. I feel very fond of Ruth mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a similar way that that I have, you know, just like a fondness for, I don't know, the younger selves that I was when, when I was, that I wrote about in Neanderthal. Um, and my fondness for Ruth is definitely 
different than 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 um, many other other characters in this. I feel a great fondness for Luz in the fine in the final story, and a great fondness for Damien and Rembrandt behind windows, like a, a, the middle story. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that is maybe that is why because um, they they are not me at all. They, they're nothing like me, but but they've sort of siphoned a little bit of me in, into their into their stories. But with Ruth, and specifically to your question, I think that it was natural for me to um, see her off into this this um, kind of greater, more defined and successful life. Because I think that her willingness and curiosity to to delve uh, deeply into this relationship with Max and then later with Max's drummer Nikki um, is is one that is uh, somewhat special. She isn't afraid um, to to go all the way in. I mean. It would have been nice if, if Ruth could have had a little fairy godmother tap her on the shoulder and say, hey, now is the point to back out of this relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really get that fairy godmother in real life. And so typically you have to follow um, the experience through to the arc's natural end. And she did do that with her relationship with Max and Nikki. But I think that the type of person that she is, the type of person that will give all and be willing to experiment even though it's detrimental, um, is the same sort of temperament that would lead her into lead a person and, and that led Ruth into making great strides as soon as she hit on something that felt authentic and purposeful and real to her like film mm-hmm. right um and randall i'm so glad that you brought up the story rembrandt uh behind windows because that's not one that we talked about in version one of this podcast but i would like to talk about it now it's one of the stories that drew me in the hardest um the main question that I have about this story, who is about uh, a young man who who is um, losing his mother, has lost his mother, and how his father and he are dealing with this um, process as it goes on. In part of this story, he goes over to his friend's house, his friend who he describes as someone who uh, still wants to play Magic the Gathering at night and is, spends his time playing old video games on uh, Nintendo and Sega and Atari. And by the way, I want to hang out with this guy. Um, I'm happy to do yeah. all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, the story kind of comes to a head um, when he brings a few bottles of Robotussin over to this house and, and they say hold up the bottle and they say let's trip uh they drink the robitussin and then um he has a very intense experience can you describe for our listeners what's happening here i'm not certain that everyone is familiar with the concept of robo tripping uh, yeah i can i can i can educate <laughs> the, the audience on, 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 on robo, robo tripping um uh, it is a, it is a thing that um a teenager of a, of a certain build or ilk um, might do to uh, get high, mm. um, and it is something that like that I did too when I was when I was a, when I was a teenager, you know. But yeah, there's like some 
chemical additive in the in the Robitussin that if you do drink an entire bottle, it is uh, it becomes a, a hallucinatory experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I you know I'm thinking back maybe 25 years ago, so I can't mm-hmm. fully remember, but I do uh, I I did write. There's this scene where he's having uh, a vision. He, he, you know, like the way I always imagine it is he's, he's sitting on, so the actual scene is he's sitting on this papasan um, that he hates sitting on because, you know, like one time in the third grade, the, 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 his friend's dog had, had crapped on it and there was a turd and, he, and it grossed him out. And so nobody ever sits on that papasan because the dog had gone to the bathroom on it. And then he's forced to sit on this papasan because he's in trouble with his friends. And, and then it, the, the, high starts to kick in and he wraps himself in this blanket um, and so what, the way I kind of always imagined was he, he was going to make this sort of jokey move of <clears throat> slipping uh, through the through the blanket and out onto, onto the floor but he ends up having this very sort of like hyper real um, experience of being of being birthed and um, and and seeing or imagining that he sees, you know, his, his like his own his own mother and his own his own birth through this experience, hmm. and it, and it um, and it complicates. And so much of the story is is Damien um, trying really hard. I mean, he's he's only fifteen years old, and, and he says at this one point, you know, like I only have so many memories of my of my mom, you know, and 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 they're finite and like and and what if i forget you know and so he's 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 constantly trying to sort of like understand her in a in a light that that feels solid that that feels like something that he can really dig into and this is complicated by the very beginning when he finds um a painting of rembrandt's Denae. Uh, behind a bunch of old um, windows that his parents, through their construction company, have salvaged. And it freaks him out because, as he says, his parents don't truck with shit like Rembrandt behind windows. Um, excuse my language. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it freaks him out because he's like, if, if this is the kind of thing that his mom is going to have just stored behind windows, like what else is she, what else had she hidden from him or did he not, did he not know about? And so the the whole story is is Damien just trying to uh, trying to co- come to terms with his grief and come to terms with the, like the new patterns of he and his father's uh, life without without his mom. And so this joke ends up turning into this very uh, hyper real vision of, of his of his own of his own birth. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you so much. Um, I want to skip back a little bit and ask about the story Shadow Play. Uh, this story and others in the collection has a sort of noirish tone. Uh, it's this sort of slinky, noirish, private eye thing. Is this something you were drawn to explore in this collection? And if so, why? Specifically with that story, uh, yeah, I, I um, won't... I should have looked this up because we, like you said in the beginning, we, we did this interview before, mm-hmm. and, I, and I meant to to look up the name of the Ross McDonald detective um, that I was reading at the time. Uh, but I ended up reading and researching how to write noir um, detective mysteries for a really long time to, before I felt like I could finish 
shadow play um, because I wanted it to very much like exist in that canon, but a very sort of weirdo kind of bizarro um, take on that canon because it, it's, it's told through a child's, uh, child's perspective. Um, but I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes and Chandler and Ross MacDonald and with the main goal of trying to figure out how um, surprise and plot moved the, the, um, the mystery along, uh, moved the sort of like the case forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but so much of shadow play is also um, a, an experiment in child psychology gone a little wry. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the main character, Norman, his, his best friend um, has, and his mind gone, gone missing, um, and his parents won't tell him, or they, I mean, they, they tried to tell him what happened, but they won't tell him straightforwardly what has happened. And so he's left to his own devices and he's got this giant imagination and he and his best friend Bobby have like spent years building up this whole detective persona and so they just play detective all of the time Um, and then when Bobby goes missing it's natural only for Norman to continue in his role as detective Um, and uh, and pick up clues and and try to try to figure out what happens and it sends him into uh, out into into the world and into some some very dark places uh, before he sort of allows himself to 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 realize that that Bobby's not coming back. Thank you. Yeah, I got into that genre for a while. When I lived in San Francisco, I lived uh, across the street from the building where Dashiell Hammett lived. Uh, oh yeah yeah it was, it was uh, pretty cool have you tried have you reread the Maltese Falcon not for a while um I just reread I can, the title's slipping my mind but uh, Red Harvest uh, recently which oh, is yeah. a very good one yeah but I haven't reread the Maltese Falcon in a long time those, those guys those guys do poor work by women yeah <laughs> undoubtedly undoubtedly um, they really do they're great books man they're great books but like it's like the 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 women characters are always so flat. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just a product of like reading from a 21st century perspective. But I doubt that women were flat in the 1920s too. You know. Right. Right. Um, absolutely. Thank you so much, Randall. And next, I want to ask you about the story Hallelujah Station. Uh, this is a very dark story, but it's also a story about loneliness and the need to connect with others regardless of what's going on uh, with one's personal situation. The protagonist of this story was electrocuted as a child when a radio dropped into her bath, and then she uh, wakes up years later in an asylum and was, um, the term that they use in the story is a vegetable. She's unresponsive, except for she discovers that a filling in her mouth can pick up radio frequencies. And by grinding her jaw, this character learns how to switch from station to station and begins to communicate through these fragments of speech that she's picking up um, through the radio transmissions. Can you talk to us, Randall, about the idea of surfing radio frequencies and um, putting together a speech pattern through these and maybe what the genesis uh, for the story was for you as a writer? Yeah. Well, I knew that, um, I knew that 
silver fillings could pick up radio signals. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I knew that, mm-hmm. but um, one of the one of the triggers for the story itself was um, an ungrounded guitar amp um, will also pick up radio frequencies, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's really a bizarre, staticky. Um, movement and then they don't always stay um, I had a really terrible guitar amp and it would do this mm. for a while and it was never like consistent just sometimes um, these frequencies would show up through my um, uh, through my amp while I was like playing or, or not playing and it, and they and they would move as if we were on um, something more sort of solid like or, you know like the cliche an ocean of sound mm-hmm. and then as the waves would go, come in and out the voices would, would change and it was always like AM church radio for the most part or right wing radio um, mm-hmm. but rarely was it music and then sometimes it would, it would be music but I love the specter you know of, of, of something we know that radio frequency is around us all of the time and that radio is just this thing that um, humans have figured out how to tap into and and then um, signal out um, but we don't think about that necessarily until the, the ghost of it appears in these random places and so the ghost of it or the specter of it can, can appear in, in silver fillings and it does in the in the narrator's uh, um, silver filling and it's wonderful for her because she does have a sound mind or she gains her mind back slowly um and it's very lonely to not have a body and 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 to only have the mind and the mind then becomes stronger so strong in fact that it builds uh, a second a second human for her to sort of interact with um and the radio uh, forms like a connection to the outside world. It forms a way of of, of existing um, in in the world, and it also brings in um, Manny, her uh, a future husband, who is you know the janitor at the asylum, and also very very lonely, um, and also very sort of arrested uh, developmentally. And he loves old music. His favorite song is uh, Bing Crosby's Did You Ever See a Dream? Mm. Walking, well, I did. And it comes on, and he gets so excited that the song is playing, you know? And, mm. and so they end up, you know, in love, these two. And, and the narrator does end up regaining um, her mobility, so it... It, it isn't just sort of like a person with no physical agency. But I think of this as like a, a platonic love story. I don't, I think of it as being very romantic, um, but but also, um, but a platonic love because Manny doesn't like being touched or touching people. Um, so, so I never really think of it as being a consummated love. But, but I wanted to explore I wanted them to be in love. I wanted them to find joy eventually. Um, right. Thank you so much. And may I ask, um, do you remember what kind of guitar amp it was that uh, that you were using that picked up the radio frequencies? 
I don't actually. No, I do. It was actually one of my Marshall oh, wow. um, two band heads where the ground had gotten loose. Eventually, it was fixed mm. um, by by regrounding it. I think it was either that or the fifty one fifty head. Mm. Yeah, I was just curious. We. Um one of my bands we used to have a PA system that would just like randomly catch fire sometimes like the one of the cabinets would just start <laughs> glowing yeah we'd be like oh time no, to unplug the PA yeah I for sure that. cool well thank you Randall and finally uh, I want to talk about the story just like Blue Velvet this story to me uh, ties together all of the stories that come before and after it and serves as sort of a gravitational center of this collection and this story you have someone who produces these subliminal corporate soundscapes, uh, these ambient soundtracks for corporate commercials that are laced with destructive sound bites from horror films or David Lynch films, etc. Um, I tied this in conceptually with the sound bites that were used to communicate in the story Hallelujah Station. Uh, you also have recording devices in this story that um, can be used for recording sex, but the character is not concerned with the potential of this. Uh, and this thread, of course, reminded me of North of Wendell. Um, there are many other threads running through this story that connect to others. Randall, was it your intention to have these threads all connecting through the collection? Or is this something that just happened? Or are these connections that I, uh, the reader, am imposing on your text? They were, they were not intentional. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's for sure. I, 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 I imagine... That you're picking up on that though because it's really hard for me to, to all of the characters in this story are at this point of crises right mm-hmm. um, everything that they've been doing all along doesn't work for them anymore um, and so then um, they have to figure out some way out of it or, or, or around it I feel like that, that that is the commonality that um, that I sort of chose stories from the large pile of stories that I have to make to make this collection. But, but one of the things I do think you're picking up on, though, is I have a really hard time just simply letting my characters be without also having a job or an obsession mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that they're really into, you know. And so, um, and so when, when I, you know, like when I think about Ruth and North of Wendell. Hers is this video camera that, that her father gave her. And so then that became this um, tool for her to start navigating um, life with. Um, or in the case of Walter, uh, the character in Just Like Blue Velvet, he um, was, you know, uh, is was a sound artist, an artist who made these massive um, sound installations, um, but then quit too fast when he got a negative review from the LA Times um, and then kind of gave himself away to corporate America as being the sound designer for McDonald's or or, or, or whatever else. Um, other characters too, Luz in the final story um, is, is a puppeteer. Um, they make puppets. And so um, I find that um, I'm always because I am like this because I'm a sort of distractible and busybody. Busybody, I guess, means nosy. So 
I don't know, I'm always bouncing around from a million different projects. Mm-hmm. Then I sort of force that on my characters. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they need to also be, they can't only have, like, familial or romantic crises. They also need to be obsessing over their artwork. Or um, Damien's, I like Damien's uh, obsession with cigarettes and, um, and with... Um, he finds a garter belt in his mother's underwear drawer and becomes obsessed with this idea of like an adult being sexual. It freaks him out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I rely a lot on my characters' interests um, and artistic endeavors, their obsessions, as this other way to kind of deepen who they are as people. And I just do that for myself, and then it ends up kind of becoming a, a major aspect on the, on the page too right thank you so much Randall and thank you for writing this wonderful collection I'm so happy that it's now out in the world um, by the way this is a collection that on its release date we actually had people waiting outside to pick it up um, they were very excited for to have it in their hands um, listeners nice. Yeah. nice to hear thank you yeah absolutely Listeners, I've been speaking with M. Randall O. Wayne, author of Hallelujah Station, which is published by our friends at Autumn House. Randall, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank M. Randall O. Wayne for joining me. Copies of Hallelujah Station can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.